Hey everyone, Zach here. Welcome to Jesuitical. We're going to get to this show in just a second. We've got a pretty powerful, special show remembering Dr. Paul Farmer. But before that, we have a few words from our sponsor. So the other day I started binging this new program called Charlemagne, the father of Europe, and it's so good. I've always like been fascinated by Charlemagne, both because he's this like figure coming out of the so-called dark ages and who's someone who's a you know, very savvy political leader, but also very devout. But I learned some pretty crazy things I never knew about Charlemagne. Like he had a sister, Gisela, who was a nun, but also happened to be his close confidant and advisor and, you know, really wielded a lot of influence at the time, which is pretty crazy and remarkable considering this was over a thousand years ago. So I highly recommend checking out Charlemagne, the father of Europe, but it's only available to stream on Wondrium. Wondrium is home to video and audio learning experiences on virtually any topic you can imagine. You can check out documentaries, series, lessons, how-tos, and more, and they're all presented by teachers, professors, and experts who really know their stuff and who make learning fun and exciting. I love Wondrium because the content's so high quality. I know the information's trustworthy, and it's so easy to listen and learn on the go. You can you can toggle back and forth between audio and video if you're, you know, if you're watching it at home. You can get the full lecture on video. You hop in your car, turn on audio, listen to it like a podcast. It's great. And we want you to sign up for Wondrium today and learn more about Charlemagne and how he became the father of Europe. And Wondrium is offering our listeners a special limited time offer, a free 22-day trial membership. But to get this offer, you need to visit wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Sign up today. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley, and um, really excited to, I'm, I don't know, excited is the wrong word, because we got some hit with some tough news this week, and I'm just appreciative that we we had the chance to kind of market with the show. Yeah. So on Monday, Dr. Paul Farmer died unexpectedly in his sleep at the uh, pretty young age of 62. He was in Rwanda, where he was still doing such good work to bring healthcare and other services to people there. So it was, it was, I'm sure, a huge shock and loss for the partners in health community throughout the world. And yeah, I, w- I was personally really saddened by this news. Yeah, we had the chance to talk to Dr. Farmer last June. It was sort of our season finale. And this comes through later on in the show, but he really did, you know, make us feel very like, I mean, who, you, you were thinking, who are we? You know, Dr. Farmer yeah. is this world-renowned humanitarian author, like nonprofit leader, like really one of those game changers. And he, you know, gave us so much time and attention, took our questions so seriously. And, and we had a ton of fun with him too. Um, was really like this very fun, charismatic figure who, you know, leaves an impression. And so was very saddened to to hear this news this week. Um, and we wanted to find some way to kind of remember that conversation, but also give some people that knew him a chance to do that as well. Yeah. And and just to give some context around that, that conversation, we recorded back in June of 2021. So it was 
Now, before the Delta wave hit, COVID seemed like it might be on the on the way out. So we get into a little bit of that to get his perspective on on COVID nineteen as kind of like a public health crisis. And so he was he was wonderful on that, and then many other topics. And today we talked to someone who knew Paul Farmer very well. Her name is Jenny Weissblock, and she was the chief advisor to Paul Farmer from two thousand nine. She also served as his spiritual director as a Dominican laywoman, and she is the author of his biography, Paul Farmer, Servant to the Poor. Yeah, so stick around for our conversation with Jenny Block, and then stay tuned for a rerun of our conversation with Dr. Paul Farmer from last June. Joining us from Miami is Jenny Weiss-Block, Jenny is a Dominican laywoman and a practical theologian, and she was the chief advisor to Dr. Paul Farmer from 2009 and is the author of Paul Farmer, Servant to the Poor. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jenny. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. We had the privilege to interview Paul one time and had such a great time with him, and I I know that you, you knew him very well. You were an advisor and a friend, and so for, first, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry for your loss this week. It's been a... It's been very difficult. It's very hard. You know, some, some, when some, someone dies suddenly, but there's, you know, no time to prepare. I keep having the visual idea of the saints and angels coming for him and, you know, bringing him home to God. And so I think, I think a lot of people find some comfort in that because I, I don't think there's any confusion on anybody's part. Um, where Paul is right now. Yeah. And you say that as, as someone who knows Paul uh, very, or knew Paul very well. Um, can you can you tell us when you first first met him? <laughs> well, he used to not want me to tell people because he used to say, when I only knew him for five or six years, he goes, well, we have to tell people we've known each other for 25 years because that's how well we know each other. But actually, I met Paul he was he his family they live in Miami that's where their his base is you know he worked at Harvard but he his family lives in Miami and he never owned anything and somebody some of the PIH manufacturers wanted him to get a, a house so he bought this small house i didn't know him but he knew a friend of mine and she was telling me about this doctor and mountains beyond mountains had already been written. And I was in the middle of downsizing when my youngest child left for college. And I said, Oh, I have a lot of furniture. Do you think he would like it? And she said, well, let me ask him. And then I sent him an email and he never wrote me back, but I somehow, she gave me the keys and I gave him a lot of furniture, but I didn't really want to meet him because I was afraid he was the kind of person that believed his own PR and which I, which would be a great, he could be a great person, but I kind of didn't think he'd be for me, but I decorated and put all the furniture in the house. And I left him a note and said, thank you for your work among the poor. And then he came to the house with his mother and he was shocked because as I said, the only thing in the house, when I got there was a mattress on the floor and a coffee <laughs> pot that could have been a science experiment. And, and he's, uh, he's not like a grad student at this point. He's well into no, his he's, career. He's, no, he's, they've already written Mountain Beyond Spot. Um, you know, no, he's, he's already very well known. I was, that's what I was thinking. He must be, you know, a person who believes his own PR. So his mother calls and says, could you come over? Cause we'd like to thank you. So I said, I'm going to tell his mother, no. So <laughs> I go over and 
He's sitting in a chair reading, a chair I put in the living room with an ottoman. And he gets up and he puts the book upside down. And I look down and he's reading Meister Eckhart. And which, if you know who he is, he's a, a German Dominican theologian from the Middle Ages who's extremely dense, very brilliant, and he's a mystic. But he's so I go, You're reading Meister Eckhart? And he, says, well, I'm trying to, but it's really hard. And I'm like, I don't know, people reading Meister Eckhart, they don't believe their own PR. (laughs) So, And so I'm a Dominican, you know, so we always say that Meister Eckhart brought us together. (laughs) I mean, that story alone reveals you. Paul Paul was really Catholic. I mean, it's not like you don't just like, or he's putting on a good show for you at that time. No, no, no. I was just, (laughs) you know, I was his spiritual director. Or as he likes to say, his interior decorator. Um, <laughs> so, and actually, sometimes we would be in these, you know, highfalutin places, and we'd be with, you know, big shot, you know, business people. And then he would say, "This is my spiritual director." And then they're like, "Do I? Do I? Do I need one? Do I have one?" Um, and so, how did um, how did that start? He asked me, you know, as, yeah. as I got to know him, he was very interested in the spiritual life, and he had this huge religious imagination and right now i mean it's you know everyone's really you know heartbroken in many ways and some you know it's it's sort of hard to imagine life without paul how would you describe that religious imagination of his you know in many ways paul was a very extremely brilliant although if he would say oh you're so smart he would say i work hard and that is true he worked really hard but he has this very very synthetic mind but we were saying today i went over to the church to work on the funeral arrangements and he had this gift where he could make you feel like you were the most important person and he had this of course amazing memory so he would see you a year later and say you know how's your grandmother? Cause you said she was sick or, you know, how, did your arm heal? Okay. And, you know, or of course I'll write that letter for college or, you know, he was just so generous and, and he, he was real. I mean, I, I sometimes I'll tell people in spiritual direction, I said, the good news and the bad news is God knows exactly what's in your heart. <laughs> and, you know, I knew what was in his heart. Um, and he, and he never put himself forward as a perfect person. He was always very honest about his flaws and his mistakes. And, and, and so there was so much humility in that. Do you think he'd be uncomfortable with people calling him a saint right now? I would think he would say, I mean, the people who knew me best wouldn't think I was a saint. Um, but of course, you know, as you probably followed all this conversation in recent times about someone like Dorothy Day, the idea that the saints are perfect, you know, we're human, you know, humanity is, you know, was not perfect. He tried to build the kingdom of God in the here and now. And there were so many times when I was with him in different places, when I, I felt the closest you've ever been to that line between the kingdom of God and the here and now because that's really what he tried to do. You know, when you interviewed him before, the last question you asked, of course, who would you say is a saint? And he said, Gustavo Gutierrez. 
who of course is someone Paul very, very much look up, looked up to. And they did a book together. I was the editor of the book and he's been very worried in the last few months about Father Gustavo, who's 96. And he was like, I had a dream about Father Gustavo and then I would try to, you know, we'd get in contact and he spoke to him just a few weeks ago. And one of the things I told Father Gustavo is that Paul said, you should be a saint. You know, who would you name as a saint? And so I won't be surprised if there's a lot of people who would, who, who, who would be saying that about Paul. Father Gustavo Gutierrez is, um, you know, one of the, I mean, the founding thinker and theologian behind liberation theology, which I know is very near and dear to, to Paul's heart and to his formation. Could you say a little bit about what liberation theology is? Yeah, well, so what happened was this. Paul, when Paul was a young man, and you know, and he likes to tell he liked to tell students he applied for a Fulbright to Africa and he didn't get it. And so Haiti was the second choice. Might have even been the third. He wanted to go to Africa. So he was so overwhelmed by the poverty until he read liberation theology and still he until he understood looking at history and experience from the underside, from the experience of poor people and understanding that there are structures that keep people oppressed. He couldn't really understand the poverty he was seeing. And what made him understand that was reading Father Gustavo's work when is understanding liberation theology. So it wasn't just research and it wasn't just teaching and it wasn't just service and it wasn't just advocacy. It was these things together to try to change the basics way both people thought as well as the way they act. And then, you know, and then unmasking and changing these structures that, you know, that keep people oppressed. You know, I, uh, as I got the news, like everyone else, I was, I mean, really sad and, you know, kind of gutted by the news because it's such a shock. But as you're talking about, you know, his thinking about structures, I, there was at least some consolation in that, like, thank God Paul, like, built all these systems and structures that are going to, you know, save millions of lives after he's gone. And I just, it it makes you reflect on what your, your own (laughs) role in building up the kingdom of God Mm -hmm. here and now is. Cause I was just so, that was the first thought that came to me is that like all these things are going to outlive Paul and and, and continue to build the kingdom. Well, I've had to say to many people Paul would be so mad at us if we don't go forward with hope. Because people, I, you know, the branch of theology that talks about hope is eschatology and if you, in political theology especially. But, you know, the end times. And I always used to say, you are an eschatologist because he's a hope giver. And, you, and people all the time when he would be interviewed, they would go, well, how do you keep from getting so depressed and see all of this? And he was a hope giver. He believed he 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 had he he believes that in in hope. He believes in, pro, in the promise of people. And there's so many people who who he knew and who knew of him that feel exactly the same way you feel. I go. We have to we have to go forward somehow with hope. You know, it's just we're just going to miss him so much. I've had I've been telling. There's been a lot of people here, and I go. You know, Jesus wept when his friend died. You're supposed to be sad. That's the cost of love is to, 
you know, to be sad when the people you love die. But, but if we don't carry on, I mean, he wouldn't get mad because he didn't have a temper. He didn't get mad. It would be worse because he'd be disappointed in us. And nobody ever wanted to disappoint Paul. So of of course, one huge part of his legacy is going to be uh, partners in health and the and the hospitals and the systems that that he built up. Um, But I was struck by a line in a remembrance we just published at America by Father um, John Deere, who is also a friend of of Paul's. Um, I talked to him yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) So he he says when they were when they were Paul decided he was going to found the, the a nonprofit. He said the the one rule was that everyone had to be treat others with unconditional kindness. And I'm sure that, you know, carried out in many aspects of his life. Zach and I experienced that when he took the time to to talk to us with lowly <laughs> lowly podcasters when he I'm sure had much more important things to do. You no, know, he loved to do like <laughs> so he would have talk you know <laughs> we do these interviews and I go, well, yeah. thank you very much for your time. He goes, I'm it's over. We're just getting going. <laughs> um, and so, no, he like, and he'll yeah. re- he would remember everybody and everything. You know, John Deere was a friend of his from college. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to have just like been in the like <laughs> in a that fly dorm on the room. Wall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. In college. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, he grew up in extremely modest circumstances. He they were they lived on a bus. His family with and they they, they didn't have running water. So. I think, and his science teacher saw a lot of promise in him and she helped him with the college process. And, you know, of course he went to Duke on a full scholarship. And I think when he got to college, it was pretty exciting because the world was so much bigger, but it took him a little while to get his bearings and find his group. And then he had extraordinary intellectual growth, but on the personal side, he met a group of nuns who work with the migrants and they were, as he goes, social, they were social justice, hardcore nuns. And he began to go to the migrant camps and then with these nuns that, and you begin to have this contrast experience was what, what Skelebex calls this contrast experience where how come 20 miles from here, Everyone has everything they need, and these people don't have enough food or any medical care. And that's and then he began to study, and and then you know put those things together. But I've met a lot of his friends from college, and <laughs> yeah, he was he, he was then, and he <laughs> he was always a, he was a lot of fun. He was he was old, he was you know he was a lot of fun he's very as you know a very charismatic person but he was a lot of fun and a lot of that came from he really you know he cared a lot about people you know and who and was very interested in people and their lives and yeah and their stories you uh, mentioned that paul would be uh, disappointed if we didn't you know go on and go forth how do you think paul would want us to do that well you know he used to say two things like he used to say we need to do this we need to do that and then he didn't say he didn't ever say you need to do it he said it just needs to happen when they were in uh, west africa during ebola he made this long list of like we need doctors we need nurses we need gardeners we need truck drivers we need priests we need social workers so i think somehow being in touch with what your gifts and your vocation are I think worrying and caring about the poor and 
and having some consciousness of trying to understand what it means to build the kingdom of God in the here and now and what that really means. You know, you think with all the suffering he saw that it would be too much, but he never turned his gaze from suffering. The One of the last pictures he sent me is a picture of himself with a little 10-year-old girl with cancer in Africa. And he says, I got her to smile. She told him, I've seen you here seeing other people, but I was waiting till you would come and see me. And he sent me a picture of her with this little girl. And he said, I got her to smile. And, you know, in his last days, he was arranging her, her cancer care. I know you kind of spoke to how his faith and his hope connected, but just hearing that story, like being confronted over and over with suffering like that hope you know it's a it's a good word we like it we want to be hopeful but like day to day how did he maintain that hope and and continue to do so much good I think he loved God with his whole heart and he loved his neighbor as himself I think he took it really seriously over his bed are two big posters of the corporal works of mercy and the spiritual works of mercy and that was kind of his action plan Somebody once made a comment about my father, and I keep thinking of it because he knew when, when my father died, and he goes, God just took a few more minutes when he made him. And so, I mean, that's kind of all, you know, somehow God just took a few more minutes when he made him. And, you know, I, I, I have to, you know, as I said, it's going to be very hard, but my default is God has to be how blessed I was to know him. And to, you know, be part of his life. There'll be thousands and thousands of people who will feel the same way. Jenny, thank you again for uh, coming on and, and sharing your, your memories of Paul and what, what he meant to you and to the world. Um, and, you know, we're going to take this chance right now to transition into uh, rerunning the conversation that we had with Dr. Paul Farmer last year that, that was so memorable. So here's our conversation from last year with Dr. Paul Farmer. Joining us from Miami is Dr. Paul Farmer. Dr. Farmer is a medical anthropologist and physician and co-founder of Partners in Health. Welcome to Jesuitical, Dr. Farmer. Great to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. for joining us. This is like a real treat and joy and honor. Well, thank you. I'm glad you feel the same way I do. Oh, thanks. Uh, we could start any number of places, but I'm wondering if you, we're, we're coming up on a year and a half into this pandemic, and Americans in particular have been confronted with a level of death from infectious diseases that I think a lot of us thought could never happen here in our privileged bubble. Now, you've been fighting epidemics in poor countries for decades. Do you think that the shock of the last year has a chance of being a turning point in how we, in, in, particularly in America, approach global health, or are we just going to go back to the way it was? You know, I, I would tend to believe that it does have a chance of changing things for the better. You know, the dimensions of our failure, I mean, we've performed uniquely poorly as a country with the exception of vaccine development. The dimensions of that failure, uh, I think, have worked their way into the minds and hearts of a lot of people. I mean, and I admit, as a physician, you know, who has worked in proximity to this, and as a family member who's lost family, 
and patience. I probably have a particularly a difficult proximity to it. But I think in my experience, speaking with people who are not physicians or not didn't lose their own family members, I see the option, you know, the opportunity for change. And I also think more to the point, the the federal government and many state governments see that the way we've been doing things, our lack of investment in public health has been wrong. And that, you know, people will have to sort out a narrative in order to explain our failures. And I'm hoping that people will come to the conclusion that we aren't doing things right. We need better safety nets. We need more investment in public health. And we need more investment too in the quality of care that we can provide for the critically ill. So I'm, you know, probably guilty of pathological optimism, but I have conviction that we're going to make real progress. So back in 1995, you wrote an article for America Magazine called Medicine and Social Justice. And you're talking about tuberculosis, not, you know, COVID-19, obviously. But you asked this question, how would a health intervention inspired by liberation theology be different from those with more conventional underpinnings? So I'm really curious, like what would a COVID response that was inspired by liberation theology looked like? Well, I'm, now I'm dead curious, having forgotten that piece. Uh, what, what did I say? <laughs> but I'll bet you, I'll bet you that <laughs> I said things that would be highly relevant to our COVID response. You know, the first two things that come to mind, and I'm betting that must be in that article, is there's something really robust about the idea of a preferential option for the poor, because the pathogens themselves make that option, right? Name me a pathogen that strikes the privilege more than the poor. And I'd be quite surprised. Sometimes you'll, you know, I have students that will say, well, what about this? What about that? And in my experience, it's almost never the case. You know, when I say the poor, that's a stand-in for marginalized by racism, gender inequality, the dismissal of indigenous views. There's a long list. So I think that's, that's one thing, that it's always a good idea to make a preferential option for the poor in healthcare delivery, and especially so during a giant pandemic. But there are other things as well. One of the things I learned uh, in the 80s as a medical student shuttling between Harvard and Haiti was that we could do a really good job identifying and bringing to cure patients with tuberculosis in Haiti if we had the social supports that the patients needed. And those were generally around the very basics, like, do they have enough to eat? And, and you didn't have to do research to find that out. They would just, my patients or our patients would just say as much. Who's going to watch their kids if they come to the clinic and waste a whole day, you know, loitering about, waiting for medications that really should have been brought to them by community health workers? And who's going to look after their kids when they do have to come in? Who's going to help cook for them? Who Who's going to harvest their crops? So all those things that I learned in Haiti have been you know, just as true, if in different ways, in the United States as well. During the COVID pandemic you know, in Massachusetts, Partners in Health has worked very closely with the state health authorities to do just that kind of work there, to bring the equivalent of community health workers, whether they're called contact tracers or something else, into the mix, and also to look very closely at how we could better provide social supports to people we were asking to isolate from others. And, you know, it's so obvious when you're in the middle of it, right? I mean, how can someone cut themselves off for 10 days, two weeks from the rest of their community and families without that kind of social support? We, we just don't know any good examples of that. 
And so we applied the same lessons that we learned in Haiti in Massachusetts. Now, could you like just briefly, like in elevator pitch, explain this concept of a community health worker? Because as a non-medically inclined person, I found this pretty radical, but also so obvious to making things better in, in like the most succinct way possible. What is this person and how does that flip medicine on its head? If you'd really read my essays, you'll know that I'm not going to go for concise. But <laughs> I, uh, I will say that uh, there is kind of an eleva- elevator pitch version of this. And, you know, it, again, I got this idea from liberation theology, but I got the term from the Haitians I work with back then. When we started thinking about community health workers, remember, this was in an area in central Haiti where there was no clinic or hospital, there were no doctors. So we ended up building clinics and hospitals and recruiting nurses and doctors. But back then, when we opened this very small clinic, we started seeing plenty of patients with tuberculosis, and we knew that we couldn't bring them to cure. How do we know that? Because we failed. And the Haitians, you know, my colleagues, none of them physicians at the time, said, well, we need, and they use this word accompagnateur, which, you know, he or she who accompanies. And that was the term that they used for the community health workers. So I started reading about accompaniment as well in the, in, in the sense that theologians use the term. And we stuck with the expression to describe the community health workers. And what they did, here's your elevator pitch, is they linked the clinic to the home. And later we found out that there need to be accompaniators to need clinics to link clinics to hospitals. So there were really no experiences, except with very acute illness and injury that was going to be over and out. Like if you get uh, someone with acute pneumonia, if you admit someone with acute pneumonia and they're going to be in the hospital the whole time throughout their therapy, maybe you don't need a community health worker. Maybe you don't need a living link between a hospital and a home. But those are very exceptional cases. And most people, certainly all those with chronic illnesses like diabetes, major mental illness, AIDS, tuberculosis, most malignancies, serious complications of any illness or injury, they all need accompaniment. We all need accompaniment, in other words. So again, I, I don't I don't think that's an elevator pitch, but you know, it, they are the living links between where people play out their lives in their homes, their workplaces, their churches, their communities, their neighborhoods and the medical institutions that we know how to build and and staff. But if we don't have community health workers, the quality of the care for those kind of afflictions is very limited. And that's been especially true in the United States, where we have some very fine hospitals, like the one I work in in Boston, but without a, uh, a cadre or an army even of community health workers, uh, it's very difficult to make sure that they receive the same quality of care that they might get inside the hospital. And, you know, you've described yourself as an optimist. So I have to ask, if COVID-19 can't, you know, get America to jump into action in terms of creating those linkages between the medical world and meeting people where they're at, then like, what what can? Like, what what's going to get us there? Well, there's nothing in my lifetime, you know, that I've seen that offers a better chance. You know, sometimes I thought after the recession in 2008, you know, there would be a waking up and we said, well, you know, if unemployment's high, why don't we just train 
oh, let's say a million community health workers to be living links between communities and medical institutions. That didn't come to pass. And, you know, I was, I, I'm 61 and, and I can say without a doubt that this is the ranking health problem of my lifetime in this country and in many others. So I think a lot of us are banking on this being the, the stimulus for a real rethink of our systems. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how to reach people as we're coming out of this pandemic and we're developing vaccines and getting shots in arms. There's still a good amount of the population that is at least vaccine hesitant. And, and you've worked in places, I'm thinking particularly in like Rwanda, coming out of the genocide, where public trust kind of needed to be rebuilt to combat a public health problem. And as you survey what's happening in the U.S. with our vaccine rollout, and people being hesitant about getting this care that a lot of people around the world need and don't have access to, is there an approach that that we're missing or or should we just keep going with the like million dollar lotteries? <laughs> I don't have a problem with the million dollar lotteries. That's how important this is. But I would just say that for me, the term vaccine hesitant is a diagnosis of exclusion, as we say in medicine, right? Because until we remove all the structural barriers that have generated no small amount of that mistrust, we really cannot be sure that what we're seeing is in people's heads and not in our virulent society, you know, which is riven by racism, gender inequality, and massive social inequalities of all sorts. No national insurance program that covers everyone. A, uh, a public health system from which we've divested so, you know, by the way, most of the time when I say this, people are just roll their eyes and say, he's telling us that there is no such thing as vaccine hesitancy. And I'm not really saying that. I'm just saying, in my experience over the last 35 or so years, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Don't invoke it until you've addressed the structural barriers, cost barriers. You know, if you, if you take um, a, a vaccine like uh, the vaccine for human papillomavirus, which can prevent the great majority of cases of cervical cancer, it also costs a lot of money. And you know, people will say, well, the COVID vaccine is free. Well, getting there might not be. I actually you know, flew uh, from Miami to Boston to get my COVID vaccine. You know, granted, I got it early, uh, as other uh, medical faculty did. But you know, who can do that? You know, people, the elites of Latin America are flying up to Miami to get there. COVID vaccine. I, I just lost a friend last week uh, in Haiti, a, uh, a distinguished public health physician, and she died unvaccinated. But there's no way she could have gotten the vaccine because it wasn't available in Haiti. I know these are rather stark examples, but I'm, I'm saving my comments about vaccine hesitancy until we do more to build that trust. And you brought up uh, Rwanda after the genocide against Tutsi. It was pretty much the same experience there. We heard that there would be massive mistrust in the rural areas to which we were dispatched and, and where we still work, by the way, 20 years later. But we didn't see massive distress. We saw a clinical desert. I mean, we got sent to a district in and ended up being sent to three districts in Rwanda. And in none of them was there even a a hospital, a public hospital, or any hospital. There was, you know, I'm talking about large places, like in the north of Rwanda, we were sent to a district with probably 350, 400,000 people, no hospital, and not a single doctor. Also, no electricity, no water, 
So I, I'm, I'm sort of trained by the Haitians to be skeptical about that. And so it was in West Africa, you know, during the Ebola crisis. Was there mistrust? Massive. But when we started providing care to patients, did they shun us? Did they refuse to come to the Ebola treatment unit? No, they did not. So I'm just saying it, it's way too readily invoked. And the way to build trust is actually to be quiet and humbly provide service to the needy. And, and the needy in this case would be any sick person, but particularly the, the people who are sick and facing poverty. It's not a bad stance to take, right? To say, I'm going to you know, withhold my thoughts about vaccine hesitancy until we've addressed our own structural hesitancy to serve people with dignity, properly, reliably, uh, and, and, you know, in a way that isn't so inconvenient to them that, it, you know, it, it, it messes up other parts of their lives. So the language you were using there and the language um, that's incorporated into the mission statement of Partners in Health, which you, which you co-founded, you know, service, humility, uh, you, you say in your mission statement, you, our mission is to provide a preferential option for the poor in healthcare. It really sounds a lot like Catholic social teaching translated into medical language. Well, that's I'm wondering that's if you always is. thought about it in those terms. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so did you have to um, work your way there or which, which came first, the, the language and the values or, or the work you were doing? You know, it's um, it's a great question, and um, I can tell you because I know the year in which that was penned, which was 1987. So I was 27 years old, and I don't I, I don't really like using the first person in describing the work of Partners in Health, but I will say that I did write that, and I was 27, and the fact that I had been raised Catholic. Uh, would not have struck me as the reason that I had appealed to Catholic Catholic social teaching. It was really Haiti again. So, you know, raised Catholics, so was the rest of my family. And they're not particularly enamored of, they're enamored of Catholic social uh, teaching, but um, it was really the re reawakening of an understanding of Catholic social teaching. And that was spurred by the things I saw between 1983 and 1987, and in between Harvard Medical School and Haiti. Um, and so I, if I had to choose between those two, Ashley, I would say that uh, it was the experience that came first. Now, I mean, I did, you know, I was kind of forced to go to CCD, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I didn't leave for college uh, feeling that I had picked up something that would be uh, useful to me for the rest of my life. It was really, again, the experience in Haiti that shocked me into understanding that it would and should be. Now, it sounded like you're, when you were in Haiti and throughout your 20s, you had kind of had this experience of like um, disaffiliation or unlearning your the faith you grew up with and finding yourself attracted to it in new ways. What, what was it that like, you, you say Haiti, but what there made you think to connect that to this religion that you've been raised with? You know, I don't like the term religiosity, but uh, there is a fervent religious sentiment in Haiti and certainly in the rural regions. And I had cast my lot with a group of Haitians who were working in healthcare and education or starting to, but it wasn't even a Catholic priest. It was an Episcopalian priest. These are very similar uh, churches, as you know. Being in that community 
and seeing how they responded to crisis, to illness, injury, flood, famine. I mean, I didn't even know the earthquake would come. Really moved me deeply. You know, I learned a lot from them. And then later I could draw on my own childhood. My parents, by the way, are, uh, were, my, my father passed away fairly young, but they were not by any stretch of the imagination devout Catholics. My grandparents were, but not my parents. And neither are my brothers and sisters, but I am, and I owe a lot of that to Haiti. And, you know, then I started reading Gustavo Gutierrez and others in Haiti very often. And also during graduate school, I, I ended up doing a doctoral degree in anthropology at the same time I was in medical school. And, uh, and the, you know, I have to say reading uh, liberation theology was one of those, you know, aha moments where, you know, I, I was looking for something like that. I just didn't know how to describe it. And, uh, and I remember very well the first time I read a book by Gutierrez and I thought, this really nails it. And, and then again, I would, was quick to say I didn't need all the biblical references and the abstract theology. And it was over my head, that's all. And I was busy trying to learn medicine uh, or social theory and anthropology. But I knew as soon as I started reading it that you know, this was really going to change my life and instruct our work. Um, and it has. And it's not, it's, we, Partners in Health is a secular organization. I have no idea how many people we work with are Catholic. I mean, we also work in, you know, Sierra Leone, a, a majority Muslim country, right? And that work still has resonance there and everywhere else I've worked. So I'm very grateful to Haiti for lots of reasons. Uh, and that is one of them. I'd love to hear more about how you incorporate liberation theology into into your work as as a physician. You you've written before about how this paradigm or methodology of observe, judge, act, which is something Pope Francis has talked about in his uh, pontificate about how we should ad- approach social issues. What what does that look like in the work you're doing against um, infectious disease? Well, you know it, it's. Um it's so straightforward that, you know, I'm a little reluctant to elevate it, but, you know, observe, judge, act uh, is also what physicians are supposed to do, right? Um, to assess the patient, to make a judgment about what the problem might be and to fix it. You know, I trust medicine for that reason that it is a, it impels action on behalf of someone else beside yourself. And, uh, but, you know, I could go into more detail and point out that if you're going to a new place, like just say, you know, Sierra Leone uh, at the beginning of an Ebola epidemic, you don't have to observe that long to know that you're in a clinical desert. And that means that you don't have the staff, the stuff, the space, the systems, and the support necessary to provide care to patients. So the observed part could be, okay, let's note that there's absolutely almost nothing Uh, But maybe you'll go to a place like uh, Siberia, where there actually is clinical space and lots of doctors and nurses or the equivalent, right? So in each setting, you need to at least have a sense of what's available as a resource. Also, what are the ranking threats to health? Like you could go to any place in the world and say, what are the top five killers of children or young adults or old adults? And and then the next question could be, which ones are being addressed effectively and which ones are not? So the, the real work of observing a, a is, is not trivial. There are plenty of examples where you're in such a clini- desiccated clinical desert 
that you know you're going to need staff stuff, space and systems. By the way, by staff, I mean nurses, physicians, medical engineers, managers. By stuff, I mean things like vaccines, medications, laboratory reagents. By space, I mean hospitals, clinics, an Ebola treatment unit, a COVID treatment unit. And where are we? Systems, you know, like infection control, you know, mask wearing, that's a system, right? And then finally, support, which is always needed, even in resource-rich settings. I mean, look how, you know, difficult uh, it's been for American nurses and doctors this year, right? They, they, they have a lot of this fellow staff and the stuff and the space they need, but it's just been very difficult. So they need support. And especially, of course, patients and their families do. So that kind of observing is what leads to the judgment. And the judgment isn't, should we intervene, which I would regard as a very specious kind of discussion. It's in what manner do we intervene, right? And how can we best help? How can we best serve? And then the act part, you know, when you're really good at this, um, which very few of us are, I, I know I need to improve, you can really shrink the time between observe and act. Uh, in a medical emergency, you're expect to you're expected, and I think reasonably so, to be a, able to act very quickly. Now, going back just a little bit to to judge, because you kind of skipped over it, because you rightly mentioned it doesn't seem like it should be a real, you know, dilemma about whether or not there there should be action. But I feel like a lot of your career has actually been convincing people who are really good at observing and acting how to judge a situation and how to value people who aren't often valued. Um, so I'm wondering why, why I guess, in the, the science or, or the elite global community that that is often so lacking when we're looking at problems like this? Well, that's a very piercing question, which is why I'm smiling. And I don't know if that'll come through to your listeners. You're right. You know, it should not be difficult. Why do I have to waste any time convincing people to act? I mean, what, you know, I'm not a Sierra Leonean facing Ebola. As an example, I'm not, uh, you know, a, a rural African woman who's dying of AIDS without antiretroviral therapy. And, and so then you get to a series of almost philosophical questions, right? Why should we be obliged to suggest that it's important to act? And I have to admit, and this is in my darker moments, but I think also in sound analysis, that a lot of it has to do with this othering process we hear about. It's those people far away, they're black, they're brown, they're poor. So I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of the problem that we have around acting is really about a failure to recognize the full humanity of others. And uh, I'm reluctant to talk about that, um, not, not on this podcast, but I'm reluctant to bring it into the, the work unless I know it's going to do something helpful for the patients. And I save a lot of that commentary for my writing, actually, or teaching, because, you know, you don't want to alienate your potential allies in, a middle of a, in the middle of a medical emergency, right? But I could go to example after example. I'm sure, you know, you both uh, culled some of those examples. I mean, why, why, you know, why did it take George Bush to launch the world's most important AIDS treatment program on the continent of Africa. That should have been something everyone was pushing for, right? All medical and public health. I've also found that, uh, you know, there is a strain in public health, a very Luddite thought. 
and uh, and it plays very neatly into development economics. You know, it's not sustainable, it's not feasible, it's not cost effective, it's not even prudent to treat AIDS in Africa, which is ridiculous, right? So how does that logic come to spoil our ability to act quickly? And that's a it's not an academic question, right? So it's worth fighting that. The question is when and how and with what weapons. You know, and I've I've tried to also add to that as as my coworkers have, well, we're going to give the power of example by saying, don't tell us you can't do this. Don't tell us you can't treat AIDS in rural Haiti. We're doing it. Don't tell us you can't treat Ebola with a higher standard of care. We're trying. You know, I think part of the ways, one of the ways that we move forward uh, as partners in health is by, you know, sometimes being quiet and just doing the work. And then being able to point to something and say, look, you know, don't say it's impossible. Don't say it's not feasible, not prudent. And please don't say it's not sustainable because, you know, none of us is sustainable. Zach asked about, you know, kind of how the elite medical community thinks about this. I kind of want to shift to what you how you talked about this to the next generation. All right. So when I was in high school, my older brother, who's now an ER doctor, he was, you know, uh, working in India under a, a doctor there. And he gave me the book Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder, which is about your work in Haiti. Um, and I remember at first being like very inspired by it. Like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm someone from suburban Washington. And now I was like, oh, I have something I can like dedicate my life to like fighting global, global poverty. And then I go to college. I'm like, how do I do this? Where do my skills meet the need? Um, go on a couple of mission trips and like, quickly become like overwhelmed by the problem and like disillusioned by my ability to help in any way. And so how do you, how do you fight that kind of like unhelpful idealism or then that turns into cynicism about the, our ability to change anything? Because now Ashley's just podcasting, which is not necessarily helping. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't know that term, but now I do. (laughs) Um, You know, there are so many ways to do this. Uh, I was just thinking about Gutierrez, uh, Father Gustavo, and, you know, one of the things that he would often say, you know, on the other side of all this complexity is a simplicity. Hmm. And service is a simplicity, right? I mean, you don't have to solve world hunger before you work in a soup kitchen. You don't have to, you know, cure cancer before you uh, reach out to cancer patients, uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm not talking about as a physician or a nurse. I'm just talking about as a, a person. I mean, most caregiving in the United States, as in Rwanda, where I was last week, most of it happens in homes. It's family members and friends and neighbors who do the caregiving. So I think sometimes that idealism, I don't believe that what you're describing, Ashley, is cynicism, you know paralysis, intimidation. These are intimidating, paralyzing problems, right? COVID today, you know, uh, vaccine uh, distribution. I'm, again, I'm leaving aside vaccine hesitancy, not because I don't think it exists, but because I don't think it's the ranking problem now. You know, I was on the phone with, it sounds so cool to say, the White House yesterday. Um, and about vaccine supply, to Haiti particularly, and right before I uh, took this call, you know, I, I was experiencing some of that myself. I was thinking, oh, my God, what if they say yes? How are we going to ship it? You know, the vaccine, what's the te- how is it 
chilled? Where's it going to get picked up? Where's it going to be stored? Uh, but you know, that, you know, that can be part of a very reasoned kind of, uh, thought process. But the main point is a simple one, uh, that, you know, our neighbors like us need to be vaccinated. And even this expression, well, nobody's safe until everybody's safe or nobody's protected until everybody's protected. You know, I, I say stuff like that. I'm not even sure it's altogether true. After all, I'm vaccinated. I'm very unlikely to get COVID and even less likely to die of it. And, you know, and I'm vaccinated and, and not everybody's vaccinated. So I'm not even sure those slogans are true. But I do think that that's one thing that we should, you know, it's what I tell my students, whether uh, at Harvard or in Haiti or Rwanda, is, you know, you don't have to solve everything. And besides, you're not, as an individual, you can't do anything anyway. You have to be part of a team. Uh, Maybe if you're an artist or a pole vaulter or something, you don't have to be part of a team. But what other arenas of human activity, you know, are done by oneself? That's another kind of American pathology, too, the idea that, you know, you'll have to work it out. You know, your brother, who's an ER doctor, has chosen a, a branch of medicine that is shift work, right? He goes in and he leaves, right? It, it's it's uh, it's very different from, say, you know, the work I get to do, which is, you know, I'm just sitting at my desk looking at a picture of a patient of mine. In 1998, I think, he came in to the hospital in Haiti and he's taller than I am. I'm and I'm six feet anyway, and uh, he weighed 88 pounds, and he was dying of AIDS and tuberculosis. And so, being a member of a team, I got to say, "Hey, stop dying already! You know, take this." You know, and he was a patient for a long time, but he's still. I mean, he and I are close friends to this day, and uh, you know, 23 years later. And, and there are lots of burdens associated with that. There are many joys, right? But, you know, that's being part of a very large team, right? That in, involves, I mean, how many people do you think work with Partners in Health in Haiti? Uh, I have no idea. It's got to be so many. 5,000. 7,000. Yeah, close. that would be a very good, that, that that's very close. But And that's what it was a few years ago. But you know, I I couldn't do anything for this patient. Besides, anyone could have diagnosed him. All my colleagues, the nurses, doctors, community health workers. My wife, who took a picture of him that day, isn't a physician. She knew what he was suffering with, both the AIDS and the tuberculosis. And uh, But we did have that system by then. We had hundreds, now thousands of community health workers. We had a pharmacy team. We had the inpatient nurses. We had you know, he got home visit anyway. And by the way, he later more recently became mayor of his town. Right. So those are the joys, you know, and his kids and, and, and now grandkids, um, are, are, you know, friends or future friends of mine. That's just the kind of joy you can get out of not believing it's all on you. Now, an emergency room doctor has a heavier burden in some ways, because when they're on, they're on, uh, you know, they too work with doctors, nurses, lab techs, administrators, managers, et cetera. But there are, uh, there, there are so many ways of avoiding being overwhelmed. And, and for some of my students, medical students anyway, you know, I try to encourage them to find the path in medicine that would really bring them joy. 
and not to do what they think they should do when there are so many things you could do in medicine. By medicine, I mean nursing, medicine, all of the allied health professions. Uh, and that's a great way also to avoid what you call cynicism. But, you know, I'm not, I don't think it's cynical at all. I mean, maybe it's just modesty, right? And were you to find the team that you wanted to work with, you could have kept on struggling against global poverty. And I bet you are to this day. Uh, I'll bet you you take this up in podcasts. And that's a form of uh, solidarity and accompaniment as well, you know, to have a broader public understand what's at stake, you know, around these, these matters. Gosh, I feel like I was either preaching or teaching. Well, we, we invited you on to do a <laughs> little bit of both. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Want to shift a little bit to someone I know that you're a fan of, which is Pope Francis. Um, you know, he's, How did you guess? <laughs> he's famous for this <laughs> remark where he says he wants the church to be like a field hospital. And yeah. typically we only hear, Ashley and I only hear doctors in theology explain what that means. Uh, I'm wondering what, what, when you hear that, what does that analogy mean to you, church's field hospital? And to me, it means the front line of the material struggle against illness and injury. And of course, injury takes all kinds of forms, right? It's not just, you know, falling out of a tr mango tree in Haiti or getting hit by a car, you know, uh, there just like trauma is not just visible trauma, but also invisible trauma. But what I, what I, I took that to mean when he said it was, you know, we're going to be on the front lines of the spiritual struggle, of course, but also some of the material struggles. Sometimes you just sit there and wonder, these people crossing from North Africa to Europe, who's looking out for them? Who's making sure, you know, at Lampedusa, they're not brutalized? Who's going to stick up for everybody? So even without leaving the Vatican, to me, that's a field hospital kind of intervention to say, you know, uh, the migrant is of a, and, and the refugee we have a special obligation to the migrant and the refugee. And I'm, maybe that time I was using the Catholic first person we. So, I mean, I imbued it with what I needed to hear at the time. You know, later on, uh, after he said it, you know, we're still laboring to take care of patients with Ebola. You can feel solidarity. You can feel the presence that comes out of a stance that says we will concern ourselves uh, with these matters. How did I do? Great, great. <laughs> great. Is that like a field hospital? Yeah. What would it, I, from your perspective, what would it take for the for the church in the United States or or globally um, to actually to live that out? Well, you know, I'm uh, compared to what institutions are we doing a terrible job? I, you know, I, I feel like you could say the same mm -hmm. thing about what would it take for uh, the American University to do that kind of a job? What would it take for you know, uh, the government, uh, which has obligations that uh, a university might not, uh, what would it take for, you know, financial tech and unbridled capitalism uh, to make uh, commitments in that re arena? As far as the latter goes, it would take some bridling, you, it would, I would imagine. But I think for uh, the church, all we have to do is to live out, you know, the notions that uh, we're already signed up to live out. And I'm particularly interested in the corporal works of mercy, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give uh, you know shelter the shelterless, visit the dead, or bury the dead, visit the prisoners. It's a pretty remarkable list. I mean, I can tell you 
again, this goes back to Haiti in the 80s. When I heard those things all lined up together as the corporal works of mercy, I had this little aha moment thinking, oh my God, I heard that in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. You know, see, is it still called CCD? Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so I knew it was. But, um, you know, and I, I didn't recognize that I wasn't old enough. So maybe this gets back to the question about it was planted in there somewhere. But it made so much sense to me after a year between Harvard and Haiti. And then you start seeing it everywhere in the United States where we have a an epidemic of incarceration, particularly targeting, you know, black and brown men. Um, and, you know, you start thinking, well, how could we live out, you know, our commitments in this country without thinking about them? Uh, I don't see how we can, but I have a lot of optimism that we could. Hmm. We have one final question for you. Um, and thank you for being so generous with your time and, and talking with us today. Um, it, we asked this for all our guests, and we're going to give you some power here. If, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Well, just a couple of months ago, I would have said the Blessed <laughs> Margaret. <laughs> however. And, yeah, however... And Pope Francis beat you to it. He beat me to it. And you can be my witnesses since those listening to the podcast can't see this. I even have a little statuette of her here. Um, and you know what they said about her? They said, why was she? She has to perform miracles, of course. But they said, everywhere she goes, things improve. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. I mean, just make her a saint. And Pope Francis beat me to it. Um I would hate to make him squirm, but I regard Gustavo Gutierrez as a truly saintly man. And he was a spiritual advisor, as you know, not just to Pope Francis. He is a spiritual advisor, but to Oscar Romero. Again, Francis beat us to it. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna nominate Gustavo, Father Gustavo. All right. St. Gustavo Gutierrez. All right. What do you think? I love it. Yeah. I actually think that's a first for this podcast, which is shocking. So um, yeah. it's about time. You know, he has a good sense of humor. Uh, at least I think I think so. Uh, we were giving a t- we wrote a book together. And we were giving a talk together, and I was I, I think it was Notre Dame, and I was calling him Yoda, and he laughed. But I don't know if he knew who Yoda was. But I think he makes a better saint than a Yoda. Amen to that. Love awesome. it. Awesome. Well, Doctor Doctor now, edit, now edit that out if it sounds disrespectful. No, I think I think if if he doesn't think it'd be disrespectful, I don't think it's disrespectful. Dr. Farmer, is there anything you want to plug right now that you want people to read or visit or, or know about? Well, it would be very unseemly to mention one of my own books. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, this. that's what that's what we're asking. No, I'm for. not going to do it. All right. You have to, you'll have to do your homework. Well, all right. Well, all right. We'll, how can we'll, listeners we'll support partners and okay. And how can people support? There you go. I will plug partners and health. health. Partner. Yeah. And you know, partners and health is uh, in serious need of expansion, even though we do that every year and count 20,000 employees across a dozen countries. But if you look at the budget of that organization or series of them, it's so small compared to the scope of the work. And I, I mean, it's not like I work for Partners in Health. You know, I have a day job. Uh, I just think it, it's important work. And there are no doubt many other organizations as well, but it's www.pih.org. Awesome. Well, doc, Dr. Farmer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was a lot of fun. Have me back if I didn't 
go on too much. <laughs> oh, we, we will. We will definitely take you up on that. And we'll buy you better wine next time, too. Yeah. Uh, since that was a microphone and not wine. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. It's like finding a treasure that's always been hiding. The first time that I see inside it and realize it's always been you. enjoyed that conversation with Paul Farmer as much as Zach and I had uh, back when we spoke to him in June. If you want to read some original remembrances of Paul Farmer and his legacy, you can go to americamagazine.org and we will link to those in the show notes. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can find us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.